Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and joining me today is Anna Kriti from the World Bank. We're going to discuss her fantastic work on gender in India. Anna Kriti, welcome. Hi, Alice. Thank you so much. Looking forward to our conversation. Yes, as am I, because I have long been an enormous fan of your fantastic Thank work. You. Okay, first question: What role do women play in reinforcing patriarchy? That's an excellent question, and you know, there's something which a lot of my recent research has sort of you know delved around. So you might know of uh, you know these couple of papers I have, which are about the mother-in-law in the Indian context. So again, this is not all of India, but we focus on uh, rural Jaunpur, which is a district in Uttar Pradesh. So you know what I say probably will not apply to many other parts of India or to other parts of the world. But what we find is that women who live with their mothers-in-law. tend to have lower mobility they tend to have more restricted access to uh, social networks outside the home and uh, you know so the mother in law in a lot of ways is the person who is preventing them from accessing public services accessing family planning and you know reproductive health and so on so you know there could be so why is that right mm-hmm. and so one would one could say that maybe there is uh, there is some sort of an incentive the mother in law is just perpetuating maybe this social norm and she is the person who is basically enforcing these scripts about what is appropriate behavior for a daughter in law right so if you are supposed to cover your head you're not supposed to go out it's not the father in law is not in many cases a husband telling the wife but it's actually the daughter in law and as you grow older i think the the role the mother in law has in the in the family as the sort of enforcer of these norms becomes is quite salient you know so i do think that uh, women tend to be the first people who are you know so it's not that the mother in law is somehow an evil person it's just that she's also somebody who's been raised in the same social setup she has internalized the same set of beliefs and she is the person through whom all these you know things are being enforced just like mothers maybe uh, you know passing on a lot of these scripts to their children we see the same in this case you know so so i think uh, we sh- it's not that all um, actions that women take are going to be anti patriarchy they can also perpetuate it because they probably don't have an incentive to uh, to not do that i would add one one point in addition to the cultural role there may also be the function of low rates of female labor market participation and to the extent that women are economically dependent on their yes, sons yes. they may rely on mm-hmm. his support and they resent and worry about the threat of the bride forming close intimate relationships with her son mm-hmm. and perhaps tearing him away and taking away both her beloved son who she you know mm-hmm. doted on for many many years but also someone who she desperately needs for protection survival etc whereas if we compare other patrilocal societies like East Asia where there's been rapid economic growth and rising female mm-hmm. employment we don't see that tension right you don't have so many yeah, patrilocal yeah, families you know, so so i think it's the yeah. conjunction of two right i yeah. completely agree you know so because if the if the mother in law so you know there is this whole uh, popular culture notion of the daughter in law and the mother in law are perpetually in conflict they don't have to be right there is why is it that the mother in law is supposed to feel threatened because of the daughter in law it is precisely what you are saying you know but it would be good to do more research on this and collect data and i'm hoping to do that but uh, i completely agree that it's this dependence on the men of the family to uh, for financial security and so on and in fact it also uh, reveals itself in the case of son preference for instance yes. right so i have a lot of work on son preference and what you often see is that women don't have 
less of a sun preference than men you know if either it's pretty similar or some cases it's actually higher so the reason again could be that uh, women are going to live much longer and given that it's a patriarchal society with uh, old age support primarily coming from sons <clears throat> a woman actually has an incentive to have a son who'll take care of her right and in the intermediate time her status within the household is closely tied to whether she has produced yes. a son right so it is a matter of incentives you know you do have now, who has the paper i forget now someone has a paper that women are less likely to be beaten in india if they have a son yes yes i also am missing the name i think <laughs> <laughs> right that's a great paper and i'll add the link but i'd also say now you stress the economic point i will come back on the cultural mm-hmm. point in that the reason why in like across a number of uh, across a number of beliefs it's often that women express more patriarchal beliefs than men and i think that can be partly cultural that if women are more secluded if women stay closer to the home as a result of mamaji mm-hmm. then they may be less exposed to alternative discourses where yeah. men are going out in the environment hearing new mm-hmm. ideas share, discussing them with friends and perhaps you know for example in india women are more likely to justify gender based violence mm-hmm. and that again could be because they've become accustomed to it they're less exposed to alternative critical discourses mm-hmm. so yes yeah, so i think you and i both agree yeah. there are cultural economic factors yes. for all of this and yeah as an economist i would also say that culture could also stem for economics right yes, it's, it's, it's a mutually it's reinforced a mutual, the more yeah. that women so yeah so the more that mothers in law restrict their daughters movements the more that women lack exposure to those alternatives and the lower their rate of female labor force but uh, yeah you and i you and i together on this okay okay okay, <laughs> right, okay. but i think let's So those are those broad ideas but can you just share the explicit statistics like tell me how many women in your area had zero close female friends because i think this is a important statistic right i think i i i should not misquote my own paper but i think what we found was that about a third of the women had no friends yes you, you're correct yes, that's right. correct yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> i i recall it was 36% okay, 36% exactly so few Uh, on average i think a person so we distinguish between two types of peers so again a lot of this is exactly how you ask the question right, right. so i'm sure if i collected social networks data in a slightly different way right. it may vary mm-hmm. but what we essentially asked them were who are the people in your district that you engage with on a regular basis and talk about issues that are important to you for instance your children's health your reproductive health and so on and there we find that an average woman has just you know one such peer so these are what we call sort of close peers because you are more comfortable sharing your private uh, you know issues so but if we had asked a question who do you go to the temple with who do you you know borrow money from or whatever i'm sure you know this number may be a bit higher yeah alison andrews and others they have a similar paper and they ask exactly that question who is there someone you can go to 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 ask for money for example yeah, yeah. 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 but they come to similar they findings actually do, right? very similar yeah, very, very similar. Similar. so quite, i think i think yeah. that's consistent with and that's you. actually a different part of the country this is rural orissa where alison's paper is we are in uttar pradesh and but still it's quite interesting that we find similar statistics so i was actually shocked to see this number when we started this data collection we were obviously curious because there is not that much work on it but uh, and i knew being from north india that you know you have a lot of constraints and women don't go out but still you know i would have thought that your engagement with other women would be less uh, you know policed and less restricted but it it was quite shocking and then we also asked not just in jaunpur but anywhere because it could be that women engage more with their natal families their sisters their mothers and we still don't see that you know this number goes up by a lot right so and which also makes sense because a lot of these women don't have phones mm-hmm. uh, they are not visiting their family members very frequently so they are only going to maybe meet them once a year and then that's not going to lead to sustained communication you know so so yeah so that's the number we found which is 
quite unfortunate. And what's the consequence of women having very few close friends? I'm sure there are a lot, right? Mm. So there's a huge literature on social networks which tells us that our networks give us information about all sorts of things, right? What educational opportunities to pursue, where the jobs are, how to migrate. They are a source of uh, you know, credit, insurance. They're sort of, you know, just, you know, support, solidarity. It broadens your outlook. Like if we think of during the COVID pandemic when we were not meeting people, how, how much of a negative impact it had. So imagine, you know, a woman like that, just, you know, who's not allowed to go out and for whom COVID is just the norm, right? You don't speak to anyone outside your home. So not only it sort of restricts your outlook of what is possible in life, but you actually don't benefit from these, uh, you know, things that everyone else can, right? And of course, you benefit from your husband's networks to a certain extent. But I think there is a problem with that in the sense if husbands or men don't talk about reproductive health issues or family planning as much between themselves, it's unlikely that that's going to trickle to the wife at home through the husband's networks, right? Similarly, it could be that the mother-in-law's network is actually much more important for the daughter-in-law than the husband's network, right? So, in, and data that I mentioned, I'm going to collect again in Jaunpur, we are actually going to collect data on mother-in-law's networks to see because they have relatively more mobility, they face fewer restrictions, they are older, you know, so uh, it could be that, but then and, you know that's a group of older maybe less educated women so the uh, the the beliefs that are perpetuated or the information that flows in that group is going to be very different from yes. what the daughter-in-law yes, wants or needs right so uh, but definitely so the women lose out on a lot of this because they are just sitting at home not able to go out alone um, don't have access to phones don't have a job to go to where we you know speak to a lot of people so I think it has a lot of negative and also it's the, it's the perpetuation of patriarchy because yeah. the more that she is restricted she remains yeah. economically dependent mm-hmm. and also is more likely to endorse those patriarchal norms and so she grows up into yes. becoming that tyrannical mother-in-law and so I think that you know just to briefly mention your recent chapter on social mm-hmm. norms and that's part of why we see the persistence of this endorsement of patriarchal beliefs across South, Ash- yes. uh, uh, South Asia okay yeah, but I would like to add. Yes, one please, thing, right? please so there do. Is a, there is also obviously work. So mothers-in-law are not obviously all bad or. Yeah, you know, let's talk about the other part. You don't talk about the childcare. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. yes, let's you talk know, about so that. There is one paper in yes. economics that you mm. know, so by Madhulika Khanna and Divya Pandey, yes. and they find that women who live with a mother-in-law are more likely to be in the labor force because they have somebody who can you know provide childcare. So of course you know, and then there is work in. Public. What do you think? Do, yeah, how do you square that paper with your own? I don't think they are necessarily at, uh, you know, odds. Explain Uh, that to me. So I think what they are finding is that the mother-in-law is basically... So again, you know, women who work, it's not that that's always leading to good outcomes for the... for the daughter-in-law right so we know there's a lot of backlash against women who work Mm. so it's not necessarily that just because the woman is in the labor force or is able to go out uh, the mother-in-law is therefore you know not uh, not being not also Mm. restricting her engagement with other people right so it could be that the mother-in-law is and which is what I meant like we shouldn't think of mother-in-law as this purely evil person or purely you know uh, a good person because it's a matter of incentives as well so related to this is this other paper that I was talking about Mm. in public health which finds that women who live with a mother-in-law when they are pregnant have much better 
outcomes right so of course the mother-in-law is more experienced and it's she can provide that support oh, I see, right yeah. so so they're less likely to be anemic during pregnancy so i think it's also a matter of incentives because the mother-in-law also probably cares about the grandchild's health right along with maybe yes she cares about the daughter-in-law's health in the case of labor force maybe the mother-in-law also has an incentive to get extra income in the household right at the same time but that seems to be okay so wait two things one i think we can explain the maternal health and uh, anemia issue because you know that's not changing the daughter-in-law's freedoms Mm -hmm. that's just making sure she's healthy and well cared for and that's perfectly you know Mm -hmm. a woman's welfare can be improved while her autonomy is restricted so i I don't see that as a a tension Mm -hmm. what i do see as a tension and what i personally struggle to understand is and and if a mother-in-law is restricting the daughter-in-law's freedoms to go out into the village to explore to make friends, wouldn't it also make sense that she would be restricting her freedoms to go out and get the job? Like, that seems like the same kind of thing, but the two findings seem right. inconsistent. So I think I would, I would need to look at the paper yeah, yeah. more carefully because I don't know whether they distinguish between working outside the home and working at right, home. Right, yes, you're instance. right. We should double-check right, that. I was just thinking that. of that. My apologies. Don't worry about Yeah, so I think it would matter because a lot of women probably work from yes, home yes. and work on the family We should farm, double check what they're right? doing, you're totally yeah, right. exactly. So we need to check that. And then at the same time, you know, it's also we will then need to see do these women then have greater mobility? Do these women mm-hmm. have greater say in decision making? You know, so without that, it's difficult. Yes, to you're right. So let's double check that and yeah. we'll add that to the show notes because it, uh, this is, you know, what I call the honor income trade-off that many families are perfectly happy to exploit women's labor as long as it doesn't, you know, jeopardize family honor so if she's working on the family for home farm or working with for the family business totally fine she's not yeah. mixing with outsiders exactly. she's not spreading her. so yes maybe, maybe that's how we'll make yeah. sense of it. <laughs> yeah. okay okay so learning from that finding what did you do next so what we did was uh so that paper is mainly focused on women's access to family planning yes. services and health clinics outside the home and we see in the data that a lot of women uh, don't want to have another child, but they're not using a modern method of contraception. So this is what we sort of call as the unmet need, yes. uh, unmet demand. Uh, and so, you know, we wanted, to, so given this first paper, which we, you know, use the baseline data for, mm-hmm. it told us that the mother-in-law is acting as a barrier, is acting as a gatekeeper and preventing the daughter-in-law from going out and accessing mm-hmm. these services. So we wanted to see, okay, how do we improve these women's, young women's access? Uh, so one straightforward thing we did, which is very common in the family planning literature, and other literature to give them vouchers, right? So it could be that there is a financial constraint. Um, It could be that they don't have financial uh, autonomy, so they have to depend on their family members who may have different preferences over fertility and family planning. So this uh, daughter-in-law is not able to exert her preferences. So, But if she has her own voucher, then she is probably able to overcome that. So that's one. But then if the constraint is not just that, if the constraint is this mobility aspect, the constraint is that you need physical companionship to go to the clinic, which you will not get from your husband or mother-in-law, then even if I give you a voucher, it's useless unless somebody is coming home to get that voucher you know, used. So what we did in addition was uh, did a something called a bring a friend voucher. So what that meant was you get your own voucher. But in addition, if someone goes with you to the clinic, that person, your friend also gets a voucher. And our hope 
was that this would encourage women to bring other women with them uh, because you know this voucher is only relevant for somebody who wants to use family planning and you're free to bring anyone you want but it's unlikely that the mother-in-law who's much older needs it so we were hoping that you know in this case you will it will sort of encourage these women who we now know after our baseline that they don't have as many social connections to not only form social connections, but also maybe leverage their existing connections a bit better. It's almost like I'm offering my friend an incentive. Would you come with me to the clinic and you'll get this in return, right? So, and then, you know, we wanted to see if people who have access to this bring a friend voucher are more likely to visit the clinic and are more likely to uh, uh, use contraception as well as is there any change in their social connections and networks. So can I just pause there? Because I just want to share with the listener that I think this is absolutely genius. Thank you. Because there's so much qualitative ethnographic work by many others, including me, on the importance of female friendships. And what you're doing is making female friendships exogenous and then testing their impact. And I think that's sensational. And I think it builds on your earlier work. It contributes to an enormous literature. And I'm just, you know, bowing your Thank you. You're too kind. Okay, so now tell us what now tell, now tell us whether whether it makes any difference. Yes. So it does. And I was very happy to see that. <laughs> you know, thankfully. Uh, what we find the first thing I think we found very interesting was that women who received this uh, bring a friend voucher had more uh, close peers. So the the peers who they engage with about these issues of, you know, uh, family planning and reproductive health. So that's great. And in addition, I think what was also interesting to us is that this this increase is coming one from obviously female friends but also sisters-in-law you know which to me was quite interesting because you would think that you know your sisters-in-law you probably talk to them in general but it turns out that maybe you don't talk to your sisters-in-law about family planning before that right so you may be living in the same household or maybe in the vicinity but maybe you're not talking about these private you know issues related to your health whereas what having this voucher did was it nudged them to engage with these people they knew beforehand in a different way and about different things and then we also see that you're more likely to say that you have at least one friend with whom you have visited a clinic right so which again says it changes you may have gone with this person maybe to the temple but now you are also going with this person to the clinic so you know not only are we leveraging and sort of changing or enhancing sort of your engagement with existing peers we also see that you have new peers and we see that the new peer effect is coming from women who at baseline said that they didn't think any of their friends were using family planning right so it suggests that if Alice is my friend and she I am your friend and yes (laughs) and you know I think if I don't like the if (laughs) so Alice is my friend and the if I think that you don't you know, use family planning, or I think you may not want, then I have an incentive to find a new replacement for Alice or, you know, <laughs> in addition to Alice, make a friend who can then accompany me. So we do find that. And interestingly, we find that, uh, and so how mothers-in-law fit into this is that women whose uh, mothers-in-law were more opposed at baseline or who for the daughter-in-law who thought his mother, her mother-in-law was opposed are the ones who are more likely to benefit from bring a friend in terms of going to the clinic in terms of actually using contraception so this tells us that you know these friends are actually sort of helping you overcome uh, this opposition that you face from within the household and interestingly it's not the husbands in our context who are 
proposing it. If anything, it could be because these are younger couples uh, and there is a lot more alignment in their fertility preferences and son preference relative to the alignment between the mother-in-law and the couple. You know, so in some sense, you know, uh, and if the husband is migrant, then it sort of increases your dependence on the mother-in-law. So I think having access to these peers, your sisters-in-law or your female friends is really uh, enabling this woman to overcome these constraints that the mother-in-law is uh, imposing on her. So that's actually an interesting story about men's empowerment and autonomy. So a man is more able to realize his family planning preferences if his wife has more friends. Yeah, that, that's quite possible. So, you know, if, if, unfortunately, we mm-hmm. could not interview the men, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, it wouldn't be so strange no. that even young men uh, also have some sort of suffer from sort of this, you know, familial pressure to perform in a certain way. So young couples in India. So in our case, we didn't even uh, include in our sample women who had not had any children because there is a lot of pressure in certain parts of India for a young married couple to produce children as soon as possible to demonstrate their fertility and that pressure is not just on the wife you know but also on the husband potentially and so it can alter the the relationship it can alter you know the decision making that that couple has about family planning and it's more complicated than just you know the husband and the wife bargaining with each other because we overlook that in a lot of uh, households especially in the south asian context there is an extended family Uh, you know so that's a point we make in the paper as well that you know Typical economics household uh, decision-making models are very uh, nuclear in their focus. And yes, that applies to a lot of the world, but it doesn't always explain everything. So there is this very nice uh, paper by, uh, I think, Paulina Rossi in uh, Restart about polygamous households mm-hmm. and how competition between wives can be... Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, you can think of the same in the case of India, where if you live in a joint household, you have multiple couples living in the same household, competing maybe for how many sons they have, uh, who gets access to family land, how much of the share is yours. I think that can really change pe- how people you know, decide on fertility and family planning. And that's something we cannot understand if we only look at the bargaining between the husband and the wife. You know? So we need to sort of broaden. Yeah, absolutely. And let me add to that. So I think, like, for example, if we think of this as gerontocratic patriarchy and from a man's perspective, you know, if a man's economic survival and security is partly dependent on inheriting the family business, mm-hmm. also if he's been raised to revere his parents and his parents you know, should be respected and revered. Yeah. So then there are cultural and economic factors why the husband may be inclined to mm-hmm. defer to his parents' choices, both in terms of an arranged marriage in terms of fertility yeah so i absolutely agree we need this broader focus okay superb shall we now move on to the next question about why women are more likely to be beaten in places where there are women leaders yes (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) that's that's what we find Mm -hmm. so uh, this is a recent paper with uh, priya mukherjee and bill gertin and uh, we looked at uh, uh in, in India, so it's a national uh, level data set, and we look at uh, districts which had more female leaders at the state level, in the state legislative assemblies, and how that impacts the experience of intimate partner violence by their female constituents. So, you know, I won't go into how we identify, you know, it's essentially we look at, you know, close elections between men and women, where, you know, whether you get a male or a female a winner is, is, is random. And what we essentially find is that uh, the increase 
in the share of uh, female leaders at the you know in the state constituencies actually increases violence, which is not what we were expecting. Uh, you know, because it could go either way, right? right. Theoretically, it's possible that women leaders uh, design better policies, which increase women's safety. Maybe it becomes easier to report intimate partner violence. So there could also be an increase in reporting, uh, but there could also be an actual reduction if somehow you know women become more um, uh, as a role model effect. They yeah, the Laurie Beeman, yeah, for example, exactly. that paper showed mm-hmm. that when you have more women leaders, people are more likely exactly. to endorse gender equality. Exactly. Yeah. So, so this was all up for grabs. So yeah. It was a great question. So, so, you know, great investigation. Yes. And but at the same time, we know that there's a lot of backlash that female leaders face. Uh, but at the same time, we were not explicitly looking at the backlash that the leaders are facing. Yeah. Right. We are looking at women. Mm-hmm. So there, it was less clear what what is going to happen. So anyway, we find this, and then we wanted to understand. How big is the effect? How big is the effect? Ah, it's in standard deviations. Yeah. It's difficult. So I'll refer you to so the this paper. Is what, I wish economists would make it clearer <laughs> yeah. to be like, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so what we so then you know we wanted to see okay, what is it that there is somehow a worsening of attitudes? Mm-hmm. For instance, it could be that you know uh, men seeing a female leader, it sort of like uh, threatens uh, yes. some sort of a social norm that they have internalized, and then that makes their attitudes even more conservative and then that has an impact on their bias. We don't find that. We also don't find that there is an increase in female employment because that could then, you know, create uh, intra-household conflict. If, As if found men, by Sumia Dhanaraj and Vijay Mahamra, yes. You know, so, so, but we rule that out. Uh-huh. We rule out the types of men women are matching with. So we rule out a lot of, you know, yes. female education. We rule out all that. So then, you know, given my prior experience with family planning, we also thought, okay, let's look at whether there is any impact on women's contraceptive Yes. And we find that women who are more likely to be exposed to female leaders actually are much more likely to use modern contraception. Uh-huh. And this is all focused in all of this is in rural India, not urban India. But we find that there is that increase. And then what we look at is families where or her couples where there is a discordance in the preferences of the husband and the wife, uh, where the husband wants more sons than the wife is precisely where we are seeing an increase in conflict. Uh, when you are exposed to a female leader, right? And these are the couples where we see this increase in contraceptive use. So essentially what's happening is, uh, and then why is there an increase in contraceptive use? We find that uh, in these districts, the access, the supply of family planning services, uh, access to programs that improve female health goes up. So essentially the leaders are doing great things. They increase women's access to these services, which also- Which is itself an interesting finding. Great, That's yeah. showing us that female leaders are able to- to promote gen, uh, gender-friendly policies, gender-friendly policies. Yeah. but whereas I think other studies might have stopped there and declared women leaders as a boom for women, yeah. you take it one step further and then look at what happens within exactly. the household. So, you know, I think very, and, and that's a you know fundamental conflict that policymakers face because yes, there is unlikely to be a policy that is you know, 100% good in every aspect. We may think it is because we haven't really looked at all possible implications. But here we do go that one step and we find that in a in a society or in a setup where you do have these intra-household discordance and preferences uh, and women don't have maybe as much of a bargaining power, uh, you do see that any sort of, you know, so the fact that you're now using contraception then leads to this intra-household conflict because there is discordance. So if you don't have any discordance with your husband, we don't see an impact on violence, right? So, and that's also a, you know, a large share, but conditional on having this discordance, you then see that even well-intentioned policies and well-intentioned Uh, uh, actions can have uh, negative consequences. So more women leaders, more gender-friendly policies, and then in discordant families, more backlash against the wives making those decisions. Yes, unfortunately. 
So what might mitigate that, that effect, do you think? So I think that's an interesting question. We've thought about it. There is no clear-cut, obvious answer. Uh, One thing one can do is, so now if we know that, you know, this might happen, uh, knowing it, we may be able to, maybe as part of family planning, uh, India has a huge family planning, you know, set up and, you know, it's one of the, uh, you know, there is a health center in, you know, lots of small places. I think when there is family planning counseling, maybe when there is, you know, couples approach family planning workers or ASHA workers go home, I think if we acknowledge that family planning can lead to conflict in certain cases, then maybe there can be some counseling element involved in this. Or maybe, you know, couples can be jointly counseled rather than just the wife making a decision because there's also evidence in the literature that maybe when you know there's joint decision making maybe you know beneficial in terms of reducing the negative consequences of family planning take up yes so and just as you could incentivize women to come with friends to the family plan you could also incentivize them to come with their husbands and right. their husbands might come to empathize with exactly and also similarly for the mother-in-law right so i think uh, in future work i do hope to understand you know what is it that can improve communication so as an interesting aside in the john Poor study we actually find that women who had access to these vouchers either of the two vouchers mm-hmm. their mothers-in-law at end line or the daughters-in-law thought that mm-hmm. the mothers-in-law at end line are more likely to uh, support family planning so we find that and that's a recent paper and so you know and the mechanism for that is increased communication between the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law so even though the voucher is for the daughter-in-law and uh, you know she could just go to the clinic without caring about what her mother-in-law thinks we do find in this context that leads to greater communication and actually changes the mother-in-law's you know opinion or approval rate of family planning which I think is you know uh, super nice and tells us that policy can improve that communication and maybe uh, maybe the mother-in-law just has beliefs which are set based on her own experience and they could be updated, they could be revised based on new information. I think the major takeaway from these three papers is to recognise that, you know, no woman is an island making yes. family plan by herself and we need to recognise all this sort of intra-household conflict and, and to incorporate that into decision-making. That's all really important. I have one final question for mm-hmm. you. What is your biggest conundrum about gender in South Asia that you don't know the answer to, that you want to find out? I think it's a bigger, uh, there's no one small mm-hmm. conundrum. I think it's, it's a, you know, big picture question that I have is how do, uh, you know, because some of these mobility norms, some of these, you know, honor norms are just so strong. Yes. And yes, we are pitching away at them through, mm. you know, small policies and mm. or big mm. policies. Mm. But I don't know to what extent there is being a fundamental shift, you know, at least I am from North India and I see, you know, in uh, my extended households or other households that I observe, yes, there is, you know, now greater appreciation of daughters that they have to be ed- educated. But at the same time, there is still this fundamental uh, you know, uh, assumption or, uh, you know, n- that women should also be responsible for housework. Uh, they have to also take care of children. Like that's not at all something that is being changed. You know, no, there, yes. there is no discussion of uh, that. Yes, you know, we could hire house help so that the woman goes and work. If a woman works, then she actually has extra burden because not only does she work outside the home, she works at home. And there's a lot of opposition, um, uh, you know, or not even like I think a conscious awareness that that norm needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely uh, you know so because there's a 24 hours in a day you can't do everything and mm. then it is rational for the woman if that norm is so strong to not want to work absolutely right so i think uh, that's my sort of general like how do these you know really entrenched norms change and i think that's just a hard question that social scientists uh, you know yes over time they change some people some mm. norms change very mm. you know quickly but then others take forever so why is that and how is these how are these norms going to change is something uh, that I'm curious about. Like, for instance, inheritance rights for women, yes. right? So uh, I'm from Haryana and I was recently part of a public event where somebody was explicitly uh, saying how it is that reform has actually created a lot of conflict within the households because uh, now sisters are demanding a greater share of ancestral property. But that person's response was not that, you know, you know let's try how to resolve that conflict, but the response was that that law is strong, right? Which is, again, you know, because we are considering that law assuming that you know it's uh, it's okay f- it's wrong for the sister to demand a right and therefore it's naturally going to lead to conflict so i think it's it's you know even good well-intentioned policies can have either negative consequences or uh, not the intended effect if you know these norms are also not changing so yeah, yeah. so uh, there's a, a paper by Duman looking at the variation in inheritance rights legislation in South India and he finds that when women get rights, then there's an increase in cousin marriage and a mm. fall in female employment because families trying to consolidate yeah. that wealth and restrict women's movements. Uh, yeah, I absolutely... Well, for listeners, I strongly encourage you to closely follow the work of Anna Kriti as she explores the causes of persistent patriarchy because she's an absolute superstar and it's been a real pleasure to listen and learn from you. Thank, Thank you so much, Alice. This has been great. Thank you.